In the same way that one good deed leads to another, one simple change can lead to more simple changes that inevitably make a big impact. That's why Allstate, along with the Aspen Institute and Facing History and Ourselves, created the Better Arguments Project. It's an initiative that teaches people the importance of constructive disagreements and how simply changing the way we engage with others can help transform and build stronger communities. Learn about simple changes that can transform your own community at betterarguments.org. This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Narrowing the wealth gap in America goes hand in hand with rooting out systemic racism. And it's crucial that corporations see this isn't just about the appearance of doing right, but good for their bottom lines too. Business leader and financial literacy champion, Melody Hobson, says the private sector needs to up their game when it comes to equality. In business, we set goals and we meet them. The unfortunate thing is that right now when it comes to diversity and inclusion, it's one of those areas that reminds me of when I was a child in second grade. My math teacher would give me credit for showing my work, even if I got the wrong answer. Corporate America wants credit for showing its work, but we keep getting the wrong answer. And so we have to be very definitive about the fact that this is one of the only areas where you can be wrong over a very long period of time, even decades, and still keep your job. There's no other area of corporate America where that is true. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute. Today's conversation is from Aspen Ideas Now, a weekly dispatch from the team that produces the Aspen Ideas Festival. Corporations need to assess diversity and inclusion both inside and out of their operations by looking at their workforces, their suppliers, and their customers. If each of these groups is faring well, it'll have a positive effect on the entire economy. Ariel Investment CEO Melody Hobson and PayPal CEO Dan Schulman speak about corporate responsibility and about the importance of financial literacy and supporting small businesses. The conversation is led by Aspen Institute President Dan Porterfield. Here's Porterfield. It's a moment of volatility, of stress, of recovery needed, and of hope for a strong American future. I'm here with two great experts who have a lot to say about this topic. And let's start with a big question. For the two of you, how do you define wealth? And how should we think about the construct of wealth when it comes to building an inclusive and durable economy? Melody, would you like to start? Sure, I'm happy to start. I think it's a really important uh, tone setting question because I think the big mistake that people have is when they hear the word wealth, they hear rich. And that's actually not correct. So the definition of wealth to me is a very simple one. It's what do you have minus what do you owe? And at the end of the day, that tells you how wealthy you are. And when we talk about financial terms, and I think this construct is super important because it allows us to understand what kind of society we are trying to steer towards, especially when we talk about it being inclusive. Because right now for black and brown people, what we have minus what we owe is generally a negative number or very, very low relative to people who make the same income and have the same education that we have, but who happen to be white. To follow up, I just saw a Brookings study not too long ago that basically made that point and said that if you look at typical white family has 10 times more 
than typical black family with the same education, the same occupations. This is an enormous structural inequity based on race. How do you think about addressing that challenge? Well, that's a, another, it's not even a million dollar question. It's a trillion dollar question. Yeah. I can't even put it in billions. I mean, these are the big issues that are plaguing our society. This question is not new. It's actually an old question. I love this story that I once heard actually from Bill Bradley, who said that when Albert Einstein was teaching at Princeton, there was a point at which he was giving an exam to students and one of the students raised their hand and they said, Professor Einstein, Professor Einstein, this is the same question as the test last year. And he said, the questions are always the same. It's the answers that are different. And so I think this is when you think about these issues that are confronting our society, the questions are always the same. The answers are different. We've answered them differently over time. And I think heretofore, the answers have largely centered on government response. And when you look at the Emancipation Proclamation or you look at the civil rights agenda during the 1960s, I call those civil rights 1.0, civil rights 2.0. Civil rights 3.0 is a corporate issue. It's a corporate problem. And I think the answers this time are falling at the feet of corporate America, the problem I should say. And the answers will ultimately be found in corporate America to help move society along and make sure that capitalism is more inclusive. Dan Schulman, your thoughts on how we think about the construct of wealth and how you define wealth. I really agree with what Melody was just saying. I think wealth, most people think of it in terms of a number, you know, how much money do you have? I remember when I was growing up, my parents said, like, how do you define somebody who's happy? And it's like somebody who appreciates what they have. And I think there's this is kind of like a journey that most people are on. I think that being said, like too many people are struggling every single month in our country. This is about two thirds of Americans struggle to make ends meet at the end of the month. It's something like 185 million adults. And so this is a issue of paramount importance where you have people who are so financially insecure. They have less than $400 of savings. They're stressed. They don't believe that their lives are going to be better than their parents going forward. They think that the system is letting them down. I mean, I think this is really the rise of extremism and really undermines so many of the tenets of our democracy. Our democracy has to be rising above your own self-interest. My favorite quote on democracy is it's got to be more than two wolves and one lamb voting on what to have for dinner, right? And like, but how can somebody rise above their own self-interest when they struggle all the time? And I think there are so many systemic issues, whether that be the racial wealth gap, whether that be just the increasing number of people that are moving into poverty that's been accelerated by the pandemic around the world. These are issues that I think need to be at the very top of what not just the public sector looks at, but as Melody said, and I fully agree with her, what the private sector needs to step up to. We cannot abdicate our responsibility to address the social issues that face us as a country. 
Melody and Dan, you're both values-based leaders who are so respected across your field for your commitment over your careers to drive change towards a free, just, equitable society through the private sector. Is there any particular experience you had growing up or a relationship you had that shapes your understanding of the role of the private sector to create a functioning and working society? First of all, I think we're all products of our parents. My dad once told me, son, the one thing you can't choose is your parents. I grew up with two parents who were fierce social activists. My dad was worried I'd be the uh, youngest kid to have his picture in an FBI file because my mom was pushing me in a baby carriage at civil rights marches down in D.C. I also think, and I learned this actually from Richard Branson when we were working together, that the only way to really experience something is to not just intellectualize it, but to really experience and to experience it in your heart. And so when I was thinking about supporting homeless youth, I spent time actually on the streets living as a homeless person and understanding firsthand just how difficult and dehumanizing that whole thing is, just begging for money, struggling and to stay safe when you're sleeping in the streets. And that allowed me to talk with a real authenticity around that issue. And I try to do the same thing on taking care of people who are outside the financial system, making sure that our employees at PayPal actually spend time with $20, not having a bank account, not having a credit card, you know, cashing a check, paying a bill, understanding what that process is really like so that when we try to solve that issue in our products, it's not just intellectual, it's really with an understanding of heart so you can bring your whole self to work. And I think you're so much more powerful when you can bring your whole self than just uh, you know the intellectual side of uh, understanding issues and problems. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Melody? So for me, I've told this story many times that when I grew up, we, I was the youngest of six kids. My siblings are much older than me. And we had a, I wouldn't even call it feast or famine because the feast was just probably the definition of maybe okay for most people, but seemed like a feast to us at times. And the famine was getting evicted and our phone getting disconnected and our lights getting turned off and feeling this crippling sense of fear that I didn't know what would happen tomorrow and where we might live. And sometimes we lived in my mother's abandoned buildings. It was just really debilitating. And I was a child. And my husband says to me that whatever happens to a child as a child really stays with you because you don't have any advanced reasoning skills. You can't think about how you're gonna get out of a situation. You think in your mind, someone's gonna rescue you until you realize there is no superhero coming. And just tomorrow will be more like today. So I became very, very desperate to understand money. It wasn't about how much I had. It wasn't about that. It was about if I understand it, I will do a better job than what I believe a well-intentioned mother, which I had, who was extremely hardworking. I could do a better job than what she's doing. And I don't see that with any denigration. My mother would have done anything for me 
and she did. And to that point, you know, it gives me a great deal of empathy for people in very, very trying situations. My heart feels it because I've been there. And so I tell people all the time, it's like we were the people with the bounce check on the wall at the store. So when people talk about, you know, what you might do, you know, well, it was a form of theft. My mom wrote a check, but she knows she didn't have the money, but we needed food. So I told people, you know, when you think about what someone might do for alluding to anything else, you do not know what you would do for your children. And I don't condone any kind of violence, but I do understand that desperation. So I was desperate to understand money. I became very, very focused on school. I thought that was the only way I could get out because I, I knew I had a brain. And I was like, the brain cannot, this is all I've got. You got to focus on this brain. And the one thing about education, no one can take it away from you. I thought that was like the thing that like you could, they could never wrest it from you, like where you might live or like a phone or a car. So why is that all important? I focused on school. I got my first job. I made $35,000 a year at Ariel, which seemed like 35 million. I'd go to bed every night and I'd be so grateful at the idea that I could pay my bills because I was so afraid of it all falling apart. If my phone bill came and it was $50, I'd pay 500. And I'd say to myself, I have 10 months of phone. This was my mindset. What fundamentally affected me was once I could stop worrying about where I was going to live and what bill collector was going to pay and what would be taken away from us, I said, this is a gift. And it's a gift I have to give to other people. It's not about a lot. It's just about being smart about what you have. So let me ask you both to reflect a bit about private sector leadership and some of the actions you'd like to see taken by the private sector at this moment in time. And Melody, I'll start with you. I think that it comes down to this very simple concept of equality and inclusion and looking around your own house and asking yourself, to what degree do you live up to those ideals? And being a believer, I struggle with those that you must convince that creating a, an environment in your company that is fair and equitable and inclusive is one that ultimately will lead to greater success, more diverse, more fair, more equitable, more inclusive, and recognizing that we all have a journey here. No one gets a gold star yet in terms of how their organizations have been put together. I think we know what the mountaintop looks like, but we haven't been there yet. And so as a result of that, I would say that we start by really defining success, which is what we do in business. In business, we set goals and we meet them. And the unfortunate thing is that right now, when it comes to diversity and inclusion, it's one of those areas that reminds me of when I was a child in second grade. And my math teacher would give me credit for showing my work in math, even if I got the wrong answer. Corporate America wants credit for showing its work, but we keep getting the wrong answer. And so we have to be very definitive about the fact that this is one of the only areas where you can be wrong over a very long period of time, even decades, and still keep your job. There's no other area of corporate America where that is true. So our Black Corporate Directors Conference, which we started with Russell Reynolds and Deloitte, brings together the Fortune 500 Black black directors. And in recent years, we've added Latinx as well in the spirit of inclusion. And we say, we want organizations to focus on what we call the three Ps, people, purchasing, and philanthropy. 
If it matters, it counts. So I say start counting. And I love the concept that math has no opinion. So count by ethnicity from the top of the organization, the board, all the way to the rank and file. No rolling everyone up in a multicultural umbrella and saying here are our diverse people and including gender in that number. It doesn't work because it masks underrepresentation. So you wanna look by ethnicity at the board, at the C-suite, at the senior executives, et cetera, all the way down. And you don't get to pat yourself on the back if 90% of your assistants are black women, doesn't work. You have to look throughout the whole organization. Then we say the second P is business diversity. In the old days, they called it procurement or supplier diversity. We think that's last century because it overlooks a whole host of areas of big corporate spend, professional services, financial services, and technology specifically. Making sure when you look across all areas of where you're spending money as a company, how inclusive are your buying practices? Does everyone get a shot? Or do you have legacy relationships that just, it becomes very hard to upend, which again, keeps people out and then minimizes the opportunity for everyone to create wealth. And then last but not least, philanthropy. There, the tail has been wagging the dog of late. People are very proud of their philanthropic contributions and I'm delighted they're contributing to civil rights organizations. But I would say, let's be careful. Make sure we're not virtue signaling because you can only fix your house from within, not without. Thank you, Melody. Dan, thoughts on what private sector leadership should look like in this era? First of all, I think it's ridiculous that in this day and age, we're still debating whether we should pay equally, whether we should have diverse workforces. It's crazy. I mean, there's one study after another that shows the more diverse your workforce is, the better you perform as a company. This whole idea of like pay equality, how can we be debating that right now? I mean, if you want to, and I assume everybody wants to attract the best talent to their workforce, if you're not paying equally across gender and ethnicity, like what signal are you sending in terms of the respect that you have? And so I think these things are table stakes. I agree with Melody. We need to measure. We need to show progress towards these goals. Melody hit on this in her first answer, this idea of inclusive capitalism, of having multiple constituencies that we are responsible for is something I very much believe in. Like to me, the number one constituency that a CEO has is to their employees. That's the number one. Why? Because I think the only competitive advantage a company has is the strength of its workforce, the talent, the passion that their workforce has when they're in. And is that workforce financially secure? My view is like, take care of your employees, step up and take care of your employees. And by the way, that means putting a metric in place. We put a metric in place to see how financially secure were our employees. We did a survey and I thought this would come out really well because we pay at or above market rates everywhere where PayPal hires employees. The sad truth that came back is that in our entry level physicians and in all of our call centers, two thirds of our employees also struggled to make ends meet at the end of the month, which told me that for that set of employees, the market isn't working. And so we developed a metric, we called it net disposable income. 
an NDI was how much money does somebody have left over after they pay all of their taxes and essential living expenses. And what we found out is that again, for this big population inside PayPal, um, their NDI was only four to 6%. And so of course they were struggling. Any one thing could put them over the edge. And we decided as a team that the minimum NDI for any employee inside PayPal had to be 20%. So we had to increase our NDI by four to five times. We're at 16% now, but we still have a ways to go to get to 20%. But that was like slashing health care benefits by 60%, giving everybody equity in the company, giving them a financial education program, allowing them to access their wages before their paycheck came. And I just think, you know, we as leaders, those of us in some position of power, have an obligation to stand up and act as true corporate citizens, because by the way, I think it also gives us competitive advantage when we do that. If you're like me, when you hear the word transformation, you think of all those before and after pictures from the home remodeling shows. The before pictures are aging and unkept. The after pictures feel bright and inspiring and it always takes a crew of people and a lot of chaos to transform the house. Now, what if I told you you could transform not just a single home, but entire communities into vibrant, healthy environments with no chaos involved? That's why Allstate, along with the Aspen Institute and Facing History and Ourselves, created the Better Arguments Project. It's an initiative that teaches people the importance of constructive disagreements and how simply changing the way we engage with others can help transform and build stronger communities. To learn how you can transform a community just by arguing better, visit betterarguments.org. Both of you are exemplary leaders because you believe your organizations, your companies have a social purpose and you try to live those values within the company and externally. But not everybody is like you either. And there are all kinds of people that run businesses that are shortcutting social impact or are trying to you know, reduce whatever they could reduce in terms of spending on their employees, or that basically don't really want to do the work of building inclusion into their core practices. How do we deal with that problem? I know it can't be easy here. There are corporate leaders, but there are also in some businesses, there are you know, non-leaders, there are laggards that just aren't following the example you're setting. I think there are a couple of ways to deal with it. So let's just start off with a very sort of meta question that is there, which is for those leaders who don't, who have decided that that's not important, the word that I've used or the term that I've said, which is pretty dramatic, but I believe it, is they are committing corporate suicide. And it's just not a question of if they will die, it's just when. Now, it could take a very long time, but if you don't take care of your people and you don't understand the importance of a fair and equitable environment, for your most precious, precious asset that you have, which is your people, then you've got bigger problems. And that just will just be a function of the chickens coming home the roost. Now, how do you do that if you are the leader who's projecting that out into the company and saying this is important and you have some people dragging their feet? I believe, again, let's just get back to what we know, incentives. In corporate America, you get what you incent. 
you make it very clear that incentives will be directly tied to the outcomes as it relates to issues that you determine to be mission critical in your company. I can tell you the number of annual reports that we read that talk about how diversity is mission critical. And so you say, okay, if it's mission critical, how are you accomplishing that? And there's no great answer. But that is not true of anything else. If it's a product launch, if it's hitting an earnings target, there are incentives tied to that. And so people have to feel it. I love this line once from Herb Kelleher, the former CEO of Southwest Airlines. And he said his job was to inspire his people in their souls and in their wallets. Well, this is the wallet piece. Maybe you can't ever get everyone's soul to believe in what you believe, but you can get them to have enlightened self-interest if they will be held back financially by not getting with the program. Thank you. Dan, what do you think about that? Oh, Dan, I agree on almost everything. So, <laughs> so let me just say this. I think at one time, people in the business world used to think that profit and purpose were at odds with each other. That, you know, purpose was all about feel good, almost like not-for-profit type of things that you would do. And then there was the business of the company, which was all about maximizing profit uh, over the short term. I'd argue pretty strongly that profit and purpose go hand in hand. That if you don't have a purpose as a company, if you don't have values that support that, there is no way that you will attract the very best talent. Again, I am a strong believer that the best talent wins in the market. You want that talent to know that when they join that company, you're going to stand up for your values. Like values cannot be something that's up on a wall and you don't act on them. It's just propaganda at that point. You may as well not have values if you're not acting on it. And I know we operate in a culturally charged world right now in a world that's politically divisive, but we as leaders need to stand up um, and we need to take, I would say a moral obligation to stand up for values because our employees expect it. And by the way, I would argue our customers expect it of us as well. People wanna buy from brands that have a set of values that have a purpose and you know, we've often taken some actions that a lot of people don't agree with. Like when we withdrew from North Carolina after they passed the bathroom bill, in my view, that was because the bathroom bill allowed for the potential discrimination against somebody for their sexual orientation or sexual identity. And people are like, well, why are you making that stand? And like, aren't you getting involved in politics? And I was like, since when is discrimination something that we shouldn't stand up for as a value across. It's not a red value or a blue, that's a red, white, and blue issue. And so I think we need to stand up for values. Of course, it's gonna be hard. Of course, they lead to death threats. They lead to hate mail. They lead to all of that. But I will say probably when we left North Carolina, that was sort of a defining moment for who we were as a company. Since then, we've been engaged in a lot of different fights that are all centered around value and our primary value is around inclusion. You know, my favorite quote, by the way, on diversity inclusion comes from, I think it's Justin Trudeau's dad. It said something like, diversity is a fact 
but inclusion is a choice. And I think we really need to embrace that idea as corporations. Thank you, Dan. And, you know, the Asp Institute has about 500 employees, so we're not a big company and we're a nonprofit, but half of our employees are millennials. And we really see among our millennials this deep desire or yearning for the practices of the organization to reflect the values that they bring into the organization and for us to partner with organizations that share egalitarian values or looking to drive change towards a more just and equitable society. Just as you say, we couldn't recruit anybody if we weren't working towards those ends, obviously in partnership with anyone that wants to work with us. Now, Dan, you have a unique sightline into America's small businesses. And you know, small businesses uh, create two thirds of the jobs in our country and are probably 45% or something of the overall economy. COVID has really wreaked havoc on our small business economy. What's on your mind about the future of small business in America? And is there something that we should be doing in terms of public policy to support small businesses in a new way? Even before the pandemic, I was worried about small businesses. I think we are not better off as an economy or a society to have just a couple of gigantic retail giants controlling the retail landscape. And then COVID came around and you've had something like 20% of all small businesses closed down, 41% of Black-owned small businesses closed down. I feel like this is like part and parcel of the mission of PayPal. I think, Melody, I would add a fourth P to your three Ps, which would be like product as well. Maybe that is already in there because I think it shouldn't just be like what we stand for, but our products themselves should be part of our mission. Like one of the things that we do, and not many people know this, we're one of the top five providers of working capital to small businesses in the country. And 70% of our working capital loans go to the 30% of counties where 10 or more banks have closed branches. And where do banks close branches? They close branches typically in lower income neighborhoods because they need a certain amount of deposits for a branch to be profitable. But with technology, we ought to be able to do things in a very different way, which is what we're trying to go do. And what we're finding is when we can loan to small businesses in those areas, their average sales go up by 22% versus a control group that goes up by 1% to 2%. And so we're really making a difference in those neighborhoods through the products and services that we put out into that. And I think whether it be putting out loans through working hand in hand with government through things like the Paycheck Protection Program, whether it be our own products that utilize not just like traditional FICO scores, but proprietary algorithms that allow us to look at businesses in ways that maybe traditional institutions might not look at them. I think these are the ways that we just need to step up. I mean, we've also made a commitment, a $530 million commitment to help reduce things like the racial wealth gap to give to entrepreneurs, Black entrepreneurs, minority entrepreneurs, 
blank banks really invest in neighborhoods that will support small businesses and entrepreneurs. And I think all of us can play a role in this, government and private sector. I look to partner with the public sector, but I really look at ourselves, like what can we do? Because I can control that. And what difference can we make as a company? That's visionary. Melody, this idea of the fourth P of products, does that strike a chord? Sure. I mean, I think anything that can help move the needle on this issue and create a fair and equitable opportunity is something that I think helps create wealth in our society in a more fair and equitable way. And so, yes, I think that that is a very good idea. I mean, an immediate idea, I just want to, you know, I have to put this in because of where we are right now in terms of the government. We need another stimulus plan for small business immediately. I mean, this is, this is nuts. These are desperate times for a small business. And to be sitting and politicking this, is just, you know, it will put our country in a deeper hole that becomes harder to, to, to dig out of. So it has real implications for all of us, not just those businesses that are really desperately trying to stay alive. Certainly, if our economy is not resilient, our country is not going to be resilient. And we have to be able to prioritize that. Both of you have thought a bit, have said such thoughtful things about what is wealth. And I want to ask you this question. There's no shortage of tools and innovation to help people who have a lot of wealth be able to manage their assets and grow their assets. Is there anything we should be doing as a society to think about helping lower income, very modest income people be able to grow their wealth? Are there new instruments or tools or policies that could help create a growth economy, a growth culture where growth feels shared? So I'll start. Dan and I have had so many conversations, or maybe I should put it this way, a long conversation once about this issue. And I know we have very similar points of view, similar backgrounds in terms of our experiences growing up that were tough, that really have us have this mindset that we both share. And we really do basically agree on everything that we've talked about. And I wholeheartedly in my mind am clapping inside with what he is saying. But what I would say, I think is the number one thing that we can do is have financially, is to have a financially literate society. And we need to do that by having financial literacy in schools in America. This is the craziest thing. You can go to high school in America today and take woodshop or auto and not a class on investing, which always leads me to ask people who wills, who cleans their own carburetor, no one. But these classes on investing literally could be life-changing in terms of wealth creation, understanding the difference between the Dow, the NASDAQ, and the S&P, understanding these issues as, as you step up to select options in your 401k plan that ultimately will shape not only your future, but potentially the future of your heirs. These are life-changing, saving decisions, and yet we are basically given the keys to a car and never given, never have never been given driver's ed. And so the most important thing that I think we can do is create a financially literate society and start with our children in the same way that we have languages. You know, we know it's better to teach a three-year-old a language than a 15-year-old. The exact same thing is true when it comes to conversations about money, which are lacking in our society, mostly because parents are in and of themselves not comfortable with the subject matter. Yeah. 
and they don't recognize that all the money habits they have, they're literally just passing on their children to their children de facto. We've tried to attack this issue at Ariel with a school that has a saving investment curriculum where we give every first grade class 20,000 real dollars to invest. We were 600 kids in our school and the kids take over increasing responsibilities for managing the money. And by the time they're in eighth grade, they send $20,000 back to the incoming first grade class to make the program self-perpetuating. And because of that, we have children who can speak the language of finance and they understand market cap and they understand opportunity costs and they understand a whole host of topics that we think will set them on a great path eventually. Thank you, Melody. Dan? I'll just go back to what I said before. We'll lead back to what Melody just said. I think every CEO needs to take care of their employees and measure it. Be sure that our employees are financially secure, that they have financial health. And that financial health goes beyond just raising salaries again. Like, let's make sure they can afford healthcare benefits. Let's make sure that they can share in the success of the companies of which they are such a critical part of. And then let's wrap all of that into a financial education program. Because to what Melody was saying, giving people stock, giving them the wherewithal to save, if they don't understand how to go do that, where do I invest? How do I think about equity? I think you're giving them the ability to have some wealth creation, but you're not giving them the education to be sure they take advantage of it. And that education is what creates something over the long-term as opposed to a short-term fix. I think we have so much wherewithal within ourselves to like, imagine if we all stepped up and did, you know, took care of our employees and helped them and gave them financial literacy and the actual financial health. That would go a long way. Like working hand in hand with government also can be helpful, but we know in many ways our government is, is hamstrung, whether that be through political divisiveness or just the issues they face from a budgetary perspective. I do think there's so much that we can do and we just need to lean in and get it done and measure it. Let me ask you this. Are you optimistic about America's economy and our capacity for structural reform? Or are you pessimistic or are you undecided? Dan, how about you first? Well, I'm a optimist who worries a lot, to steal a quote from Madeleine Albright. So, okay, what am I optimistic about? I'm optimistic that there is much more of an awareness that corporate leaders need to think about multiple constituencies. You know, this inclusive capitalism, I guess, is uh, what people call it. And I'm seeing a lot more serious discussion around that. By the way, it's crazy to think that corporations are separate from society. We need strong economies. We need citizens who feel like they can make a difference. They can dream. They can have financial health. This accrues to the benefit of a corporation over the medium to long term. This is really a debate with some people around not really the end goal, but really the timing of that. If you want me to maximize my profits next quarter, of course I can do that. 
more than what I'm doing right now. But I'm trying to build a company that can move from being a good company to a great company. That means investing in our communities. It means investing in our employees. That part I'm optimistic about. I've got real legitimate concerns whether everybody will accept that, but I'm optimistic about it. Structural change from a government perspective, I worry about our ability to get that done given the very divisive nature uh, that's within our politics right now. Thank you, Dan. Melody? I'm optimistic. I wake up every day with a glass half full personality and perspective. I always believe tomorrow will be better than today, always. That's just in my DNA. And I think that's very American. Americans by our very nature were hopeful and optimistic. I also just look at the facts. If you look over the course of history, we've seen continual improvement in the, the sort of state of humanity. Every decade, I think we move a little further, not as fast as any of us wants, but certainly the mere fact that I can sit here and talk to you and be who I am today is a testament to how society can move forward. Now there's not enough of me. So please know, I don't look at that self and say, I'm good, we're all good. We aren't by any stretch of the imagination and you should not have to have miracles happen for um, you to see some of the outcomes that I have had. And there have truly been miracles. It wasn't even about the hard work, that was a given, but some miracles had to happen along the way to help me get to certain places and to be in certain rooms. And so I say, that's not what I'm talking about. What, but what I am talking about is, I tell people on my very worst day, when I'm like really down and despondent, I always remind myself I'm not in a field picking cotton because it wasn't too long ago that that was the reality of someone who looked like me. So we have to recognize those strides that we've made, but also hold ourselves accountable, but that it is not good enough. I believe America solves its problems as Warren Buffett says, and you see it time and time again. I also think we're a great country of innovation and I believe that will continue to happen. But I think that we, those of us who have voices and who have power and who have influence have to be demanding and really, really vocal about the need to make sure that our society is doing everything it can to be inclusive and making sure that people are not left behind and helping people to understand the stakes. What Americans saw this summer and especially business people, that racial inequality is bad for business. They saw that when people were in the streets and city centers were having to be boarded up with plywood. They saw that this is what happens when people feel like they don't have a fair shake. And so I think that wake up call is not an insignificant one, not to mention the horrific murder of George Floyd and so many other people. So the bottom line is the last reason I'm optimistic, and it's a double edged sword, is because of the viral nature of our society. Society is going to hold us accountable. Our employees, our customers, people who sponsor us, what have you. If you say it and you don't mean it, I believe society will hold you accountable. Dan Schulman is president and CEO of PayPal and has been named one of Fortune's top 20 business people of the year several times. As part of his lifelong commitment to social justice, he believes the private sector has a responsibility to improve the world. He promotes economic and financial literacy to create an informed society where everyone has access to economic opportunity. Melody Hobson is co-CEO and president at Ariel Investments, where she's responsible for management, strategic planning, and growth. 
She's a nationally recognized voice on financial literacy and has brought her expertise to corporate boardrooms across the nation, including Starbucks, J.P. Morgan Chase, and DreamWorks Animation, as well as many nonprofit organizations. In 2015, she was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. Dan Porterfield is president and CEO of the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Shauna Lewis. It was programmed by the Aspen Ideas team. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Every day we try to eat right and exercise in order to be healthy and keep our bodies strong. But what do we do to make our communities healthy and strong every day? Fortunately, Allstate, along with the Aspen Institute and Facing History and Ourselves, created the Better Arguments Project. It's an initiative that teaches people the importance of constructive arguments and how simply changing the way we engage with others can help transform and build stronger communities. Learn more at betterarguments.org.